Chapter three, part four of Principia Ethica. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Fredrik Karlsson. Principia Ethica by G. E. Moore. Fifty nine. I shall say more later about this second kind of egoism, this anti-altruistic egoism, this egoism as a doctrine of means. What I am now concerned with is that utterly distinct kind of egoism which holds that each man ought rationally to hold my own greatest happiness is the only good thing there is my actions can only be good as means in so far as they help to win me this this is a doctrine which is not much held by writers nowadays it is a doctrine that was largely held by english hedonists in the seventeenth and eighteenth century it is for example at the bottom of hobbes ethics but even the english school appears to have made one step forward in the present century they are most of them nowadays utilitarians. They do recognize that if my own happiness is good, it would be strange that other people's happiness should not be good too. In order fully to expose the absurdity of this kind of egoism, it is necessary to examine certain confusions upon which its plausibility depends. The chief of these is the confusion involved in the conception of my own good, as distinguished from the good of others. This is a conception which we all use every day. It is one of the first to which the plain man is apt to appeal in discussing any question of ethics, and egoism is commonly advocated chiefly because its meaning is not clearly perceived. It is plain, indeed, that the name egoism more properly applies to the theory that my own good is the sole good than that my own pleasure is so a man may quite well be an egoist even if he be not a hedonist the conception which is perhaps most closely associated with egoism is that denoted by the words my own interest the egoist is the man who holds that a tendency to promote his own interest is the sole possible and sufficient justification of all his actions but this conception of my own interest plainly includes in general very much more than my own pleasure it is indeed only because and in so far as my own interest has been thought to consist solely in my own pleasure that egoists have been led to hold that my own pleasure is the sole good their course of reasoning is as follows the only thing i ought to secure is my own interest but my own interest consists in my greatest possible pleasure and therefore the only thing i ought to pursue is my own pleasure that it is very natural on reflection thus to identify my own pleasure with my own interest and that it has generally been done by modern moralists may be admitted but when professor sidgwick points this out he should have also pointed out that this identification has by no means been made in ordinary thought when the plain man says my own interest he does not mean my own pleasure he does not commonly even include this he means my own advancement my own reputation the getting of a better income etc etc that professor sidgwick should not have noticed this and that he should give the reason he gives for the fact that the ancient moralists did not identify my own interest with my own pleasure seems to be due to his having failed to notice that very confusion in the conception of my own good which i am now to point out that confusion has perhaps been 
more clearly perceived by plato than by any other moralist and to point it out suffices to refute professor sidgwick's own view that egoism is rational what then is meant by my own good in what sense can a thing be good for me it is obvious if we reflect that the only thing which can belong to me which can be mine is something which is good and not the fact that it is good when therefore i talk of anything i get as my own good i must mean either that the thing i get is good or that my possessing it is good in both cases it is only the thing or the possession of it which is mine and not the goodness of that thing or that possession there is no longer any meaning in attaching the my to our predicate and saying the possession of this by me is my good even if we interpret this by my possession of this is what i think good the same still holds for what i think is that my possession of it is good simply and if i think rightly then the truth is that my possession of it is good simply not in any sense my good and if i think wrongly it is not good at all in short when i talk of a thing as my own good all that i can mean is that something which will be exclusively mine as my own pleasure is mine whatever be the various senses of this relation denoted by possession is also good absolutely or rather that my possession of it is good absolutely the good of it can in no possible sense be private or belong to me any more than a thing can exist privately or for one person only the only reason i can have for aiming at my own good is that it is good absolutely that what i so call should belong to me good absolutely that i should have something which if i have it others cannot have but if it is good absolutely that i should have it then everyone else has as much reason for aiming at my having it as i have myself if therefore it is true of any single man's interest or happiness that it ought to be his whole ultimate end this can only mean that that man's interest or happiness is the sole good the universal good and the only thing that anybody ought to aim at what egoism holds therefore is that each man's happiness is the sole good that a number of different things are each of them the only good thing there is an absolute contradiction no more complete and thorough refutation of any theory could be desired sixty yet professor sidgwick holds that egoism is rational and it will be useful briefly to consider the reasons which he gives for this absurd conclusion the egoist he says may avoid the proof of utilitarianism by declining to affirm either implicitly or explicitly that his own greatest happiness is not merely the ultimate rational end for himself but a part of universal good and in the passage to which he here refers us as having there seen this he says it cannot be proved that the difference between his own happiness and another's happiness is not for him all important what does professor sidgwick mean by these phrases the ultimate rational end for himself and for him all important 
he does not attempt to define them and it is largely the use of such undefined phrases which causes absurdities to be committed in philosophy is there any sense in which a thing can be an ultimate rational end for one person and not for another by ultimate must be meant at least that the end is good in itself good in our undefinable sense and by rational at least that it is truly good that a thing should be an ultimate rational end means then that it is truly good in itself and that it is truly good in itself means that it is a part of universal good can we assign any meaning to that qualification for himself which will make it cease to be a part of universal good the thing is impossible for the egoist happiness must either be good in itself and so a part of universal good or else it cannot be good in itself at all there is no escaping this dilemma and if it is not good at all what reason can he have for aiming at it how can it be a rational end for him that qualification for himself has no meaning unless it implies not for others and if it implies not for others then it cannot be a rational end for him since it cannot be truly good in itself the phrase an ultimate rational end for himself is a contradiction in terms by saying that a thing is an end for one particular person or good for him can only be meant one of four things either one it may be meant that the end in question is something which will belong exclusively to him but in that case if it is to be rational for him to aim at it that he should exclusively possess it must be a part of universal good or two it may be meant that it is the only thing at which he ought to aim but this can only be because by so doing he will do the most he can towards realizing universal good and this in our case will only give egoism as a doctrine of means or three it may be meant that the thing is what he desires or thinks good and then if he thinks wrongly it is not a rational end at all and if he thinks rightly it is a part of universal good or four it may be meant that it is peculiarly appropriate that a thing which will belong exclusively to him should also by him be approved or aimed at but in this case both that it should belong to him and that he should aim at it must be parts of universal good by saying that a certain relation between two things is fitting or appropriate we can only mean that the existence of that relation is absolutely good in itself unless it be so as a means which gives case too by no possible meaning then that can be given to the phrase that his own happiness is the ultimate rational end for himself can the egoist escape the implication that his own happiness is absolutely good and by saying that it is the ultimate rational end he must mean that it is the only good thing the whole of universal good and if he further maintains that each man's happiness is the ultimate rational end for him we have the fundamental contradiction of egoism that an immense number of different things are each of them the sole good and it is easy to see that the same consideration apply to the phrase that the difference between his own happiness and another's is for him all important 
This can only mean either, one, that his own happiness is the only end which will affect him, or, two, that the only important thing for him, as a means, is to look to his own happiness, or, three, that it is only his own happiness which he cares about, or, four, that it is good that each man's happiness should be the only concern of that man. And none of these propositions, true as they may be, have the smallest tendency to shew that if his own happiness is desirable at all, it is not a part of universal good. Either his own happiness is a good thing, or it is not. And, in whatever sense it may be all-important for him, it must be true that, if it is not good, he is not justified in pursuing it, and that, if it is good, everyone else has an equal reason to pursue it, so far as they are able, and so far as it does not exclude their attachment of other more valuable parts of universal good. In short, it is plain that the addition of for him, for me, to such words as ultimate rational end, good, important, can introduce nothing but confusion. The only possible reason that can justify any action is that by it the greatest possible amount of what is good absolutely should be realized. And if anyone says that the attainment of his own happiness justifies his actions, he must mean that this is the greatest possible amount of universal good which he can realize. And this again can only be true either because he has no power to realize more, in which case he only holds egoism as a doctrine of means, or else because his own happiness is the greatest amount of universal good which can be realized at all, in which case we have egoism proper, and the flagrant contradiction that every person's happiness is singly the greatest amount of universal good which can be realized at all. 61. It should be observed that, since this is so, the relation of rational egoism to rational benevolence, which Professor Sidgwick regards as the profoundest problem of ethics, appears in quite a different light to that in which he presents it. Even if a man, he says, admits the self-evidence of the principle of rational benevolence, he may still hold that his own happiness is an end which it is rational for him to sacrifice to any other and that therefore a harmony between the maxim of prudence and the maxim of rational benevolence must be somehow demonstrated if morality is to be made completely rational this latter view is that which i myself hold professor sidgwick then goes on to shew that the inseparable connection between utilitarian duty and the greatest happiness of the individual who conforms to it cannot be satisfactorily demonstrated on empirical grounds and the final paragraph of his book tells us that, since the reconciliation of duty and self-interest is to be regarded as a hypothesis logically necessary to avoid a fundamental contradiction in one chief department of our thought, it remains to ask how far this necessity constitutes a sufficient reason for accepting this hypothesis. To assume the existence of such a being as god by the consensus of theologians is conceived to be would he has already argued ensure the required reconciliation since the divine sanctions of such a god would of course suffice to make it always every one's interest to promote the universal happiness to the best of his knowledge 
Now, what is this reconciliation of duty and self-interest which divine sanctions could ensure? It would consist in the mere fact that the same conduct which produced the greatest possible happiness of the greatest number would always also produce the greatest possible happiness of the agent. If this were the case, and our empirical knowledge shows that it is not the case in this world, morality would, Professor Sidgwick thinks, be completely rational. We should avoid an ultimately and fundamental contradiction in our apparent intuitions of what is reasonable in conduct. That is to say, we should avoid the necessity of thinking that it is as manifest an obligation to secure our own greatest happiness, maxim of prudence, as to secure the greatest happiness on the whole, maxim of benevolence. But it is perfectly obvious we should not. Professor Sidgwick here commits the characteristic fallacy of empiricism, the fallacy of thinking that an alteration in facts could make a contradiction cease to be a contradiction that a single man's happiness should be the sole good and that also everybody's happiness should be the sole good is a contradiction which cannot be solved by the assumption that the same conduct will secure both it would be equally contradictory however certain we were that that assumption was justified professor sidgwick strains at a gnat and swallows a camel he thinks the divine omnipotence must be called into play to secure that what gives other people pleasure should also give it to him, that only so can ethics be made rational. While he overlooks the fact that even this exercise of divine omnipotence would leave in ethics a contradiction in comparison with which his difficulty is a trifle, a contradiction which would reduce all ethics to mere nonsense, and before which the divine omnipotence must be powerless to all eternity. That each man's happiness should be the sole good, which we have seen to be the principle of egoism, is in itself a contradiction, and that it should also be true that the happiness of all is the sole good, which is the principle of universalistic hedonism, would introduce another contradiction and that these propositions should all be true might be well be called the profoundest problem in ethics it would be a problem necessarily insoluble but they cannot all be true and there is no reason but confusion for the supposition that they are professor sidgwick confuses this contradiction with the mere fact in which there is no contradiction that our own greatest happiness and that of all do not seem always attainable by the same means. This fact, if happiness were the sole good, would indeed be of some importance, and, on any view, similar facts are of importance. But they are nothing but instances of the one important fact that in this world the quantity of good which is attainable is ridiculously small compared to that which is imaginable that i cannot get the most possible pleasure for myself if i produce the most possible pleasure on the whole is no more the profoundest problem of ethics than that in any case i cannot get as much pleasure altogether as would be desirable it only states that if we get as much good as possible in one place we may get less on the whole because the quantity of attainable good is limited to say that I have to choose between my own good and that of all is a false antithesis. 
the only rational question is how to choose between my own and that of others and the principle on which this must be answered is exactly the same as that on which i must choose whether to give pleasure to this other person or to that sixty two it is plain then that the doctrine of egoism is self-contradictory and that one reason why this is not perceived is a confusion with regard to the meaning of the phrase my own good and it may be observed that this confusion and the neglect of this contradiction are necessarily involved in the transition from naturalistic hedonism as ordinarily held to utilitarianism mill for instance as we saw declares each person so far as he believes it to be attainable desires his own happiness and he offers this as a reason why the general happiness is desirable we have seen that to regard it as such involves in the first place the naturalistic fallacy but moreover even if that fallacy were not a fallacy it could only be a reason for egoism and not for utilitarianism mill's argument is as follows a man desires his own happiness therefore his own happiness is desirable further a man desires nothing but his own happiness therefore his own happiness is alone desirable we have next to remember that everybody according to mill so desires his own happiness and then it will follow that everybody's happiness is alone desirable and this is simply a contradiction in terms just consider what it means each man's happiness is the only thing desirable several different things are each of them the only thing desirable this is the fundamental contradiction of egoism in order to think that what his arguments tend to prove is not egoism but utilitarianism mill must think that he can infer from the proposition each man's happiness is his own good the proposition the happiness of all is the good of all whereas in fact if we understand what his own good means it is plain that the latter can only be inferred from the happiness of all is the good of each naturalistic hedonism then logically leads only to egoism of course a naturalist might hold that what we aimed at was simply pleasure not our own pleasure and that always assuming the naturalistic fallacy would give an unobjectionable ground for utilitarianism but more commonly he will hold that it is his own pleasure he desires or at least will confuse this with the other and then he must logically be led to adopt egoism and not utilitarianism sixty three the second cause i have to give why egoism should be thought reasonable is simply its confusion with that other kind of egoism egoism as a doctrine of means this second egoism has a right to say you ought to pursue your own happiness sometimes at all events it may even say always and when we find it saying this we are apt to forget its proviso but only as a means to something else the fact is we are in an imperfect state we cannot get the ideal all at once and hence it is often our bounden duty we often absolutely ought to do things which are good only or chiefly as means we have to do the best we can what is absolutely right but not what is absolutely good of this i shall say more hereafter i only mention it here because i think it is much more plausible to say that we ought to pursue our own pleasure as a means than as an end and that this doctrine through confusion 
lend some of its plausibility to the utterly distinct doctrine of egoism proper my own greatest pleasure is the only good thing sixty four so much for egoism of utilitarianism not much need be said but two points may seem deserving a notice the first is that this name like that of egoism does not naturally suggest that all our actions are to be judged according to the degree in which they are a means to pleasure its natural meaning is that the standard of right and wrong in conduct is its tendency to promote the interest of everybody and by interest is commonly meant a variety of different goods classed together only because they are what a man commonly desires for himself so far as his desires have not that psychological quality which is meant by moral the useful thus means and was in ancient ethics systematically used to mean what is a means to the attainment of goods other than moral goods it is quite an unjustifiable assumption that these goods are only goods as means to pleasure or that they are commonly so regarded the chief reason for adopting the name utilitarianism was indeed merely to emphasize the fact that right and wrong conduct must be judged by its results as a means in opposition to the strictly intuitionistic view that certain ways of acting were right and others wrong whatever the results might be in thus insisting that what is right must mean what produces the best possible results utilitarianism is fully justified but with this correct contention there has been historically and very naturally associated a double error one the best possible results were assumed to consist only in a limited class of goods roughly coinciding with those which were popularly distinguished as the result of merely useful or interested actions and these again were hastily assumed to be good only as means to pleasure the utilitarians tend to regard everything as a mere means neglecting the fact that some things which are good as means are also good as ends thus for instance assuming pleasure to be a good there is also a tendency to value present pleasure only as a means to future pleasure and not as is strictly necessary if pleasure is good as an end also to weigh it against possible future pleasures much utilitarian argument involves the logical absurdity that what is here and now never has any value in itself but is only to be judged by its consequences which again of course when they are realized would have no value in themselves but would be mere means to a still further future and so on ad infinitum the second point deserving notice with regard to utilitarianism is that when the name is used for a form of hedonism it does not commonly even in its description of its end accurately distinguish between means and end its best known formula is that the result by which actions are to be judged is the greatest happiness for the greatest number but it is plain that if pleasure is the sole good provided the quantity be equally great an equally desirable result will have been obtained whether it be enjoyed by many or by few or even if it be enjoyed by nobody 
it is plain that if we ought to aim at the greatest happiness of the greatest number this can only on the hedonistic principle be because the existence of pleasure in a great number of persons seems to be the best means available for attaining the existence of the greatest quantity of pleasure this may actually be the case but it is fair to suspect that utilitarians have been influenced in their adoption of the hedonistic principle by this failure to distinguish clearly between pleasure or conscious of pleasure and its possession by a person it is far easier to regard the possession of pleasure by a number of persons as the sole good than so to regard the mere existence of an equally great quantity of pleasure if indeed we were to take the utilitarian principle strictly and to assume then to mean that the possession of pleasure by many persons was good in itself the principle is not hedonistic it includes as a necessary part of the ultimate end the existence of a number of persons and this will include very much more than mere pleasure utilitarianism however as commonly held must be understood to maintain that either mere consciousness of pleasure or consciousness of pleasure together with the minimum adjunct which may be meant by the existence of such consciousness in at least one person is the sole good this is its significance as an ethical doctrine and as such it has already been refuted in my refutation of hedonism the most that can be said for it is that it does not seriously mislead in its practical conclusions on the ground that as an empirical fact the method of acting which brings most good on the whole does also bring most pleasure utilitarians do indeed generally devote most of their arguments to showing that the course of action which will bring most pleasure is in general such as common sense would approve we have seen that professor sidgwick appeals to this fact as tending to shew that pleasure is the sole good and we have also seen that it does not tend to shew this we have seen how very flimsy the other arguments advanced for this proposition are and that if it be fairly considered by itself it appears to be quite ridiculous and moreover that the action which produce most good on the whole do also produce most pleasure is extremely doubtful the arguments tending to shew it are all more or less vitiated by the assumption that what appear to be necessary conditions for the attainment of most pleasure in the near future will always continue so to be and even with this vicious assumption they only succeed in making out a highly problematical case how therefore this fact is to be explained if it be a fact need not concern us it is sufficient to have shown that many complex states of mind are much more valuable than the pleasure they contain if this be so no form of hedonism can be true and since the practical guidance afforded by pleasure as a criterion is small in proportion as the calculation attempts to be accurate we can well afford to await further investigation before adopting a guide whose utility is very doubtful and whose trustworthiness we have grave reason to suspect sixty five the most important points which i have endeavoured to establish in this chapter are as follows one hedonism must be strictly defined as the doctrine that pleasure is the only thing which is good in itself this view seems to owe its prevalence mainly to the naturalistic fallacy 
and Mill's arguments may be taken as a type of those which are fallacious in this respect. Sidgwick alone has defended it without committing this fallacy, and its final refutation must therefore point out the errors in his arguments. 2. Mill's utilitarianism is criticized, it being shewn, a that he commits the naturalistic fallacy in identifying desirable with desired b that pleasure is not the only object of desire the common arguments for hedonism seems to rest on those two errors three hedonism is considered as an intuition and it is pointed out a that mill's allowance that some pleasures are inferior in quality to others imply both that it is an intuition and that it is a false one b that sidgwick fails to distinguish pleasure from consciousness of pleasure and that it is absurd to regard the former at all events as the sole good c that it seems equally absurd to regard consciousness of pleasure as the sole good since if it were so a world in which nothing else existed might be absolutely perfect sidgwick fails to put to himself this question which is the only clear and decisive one four what are commonly considered to be the two main types of hedonism namely egoism and utilitarianism are not only different from but strictly contradictory of one another since the former asserts my own greatest pleasure is the sole good the latter the greatest pleasure of all is the sole good egoism seems to owe its plausibility partly to the failure to observe this contradiction a failure which is exemplified by sidgwick partly to a confusion of egoism as a doctrine of end with the same as a doctrine of means if hedonism is true egoism cannot be so still less can it be so if hedonism is false the end of utilitarianism on the other hand would if hedonism were true be not indeed the best conceivable but the best possible for us to promote but it is refuted by the refutation of hedonism. End of chapter 3